Space Radio. Roger, restart. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Greetings, spacers. Welcome back to The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. You are listening to iRock Space Radio. We are part of the iHeart Radio Network. Once again, we have a special guest, a a wonderful uh, long-term friend, uh, somebody I've known a long time. I mean, this this guy's at the level like, he helps throw my uh, helps throw my quadrennial uh, birthday parties. You know, I'm a leap year guy, and um, Robert, who I'm about to introduce, uh, helps put those on for me. But I mean, we we've messed around with so many different things over the years. Um, this is gonna be a lot of fun. We're gonna talk about space business primarily, but you know, you know, this show we could go up anywhere. The orbits will change. All right, so here we go. I'm uh, I just want to introduce Robert C. Jacobson, Robert is the author of a new book called Space is Open for Business, the business that can transform humanity. He went to school at the uh, University of Southern California, California Institute of the Arts, and and an organization I, I helped start many, many years ago called the International Space University. His background is is wide. He's part of the founder of a group called Space Advisors, He's done a lot of business work, helped start Space Angel Network, one of the early Space Angel investment groups. Um, he participated in uh, the development of a package that was called the first solar library uh, that was actually a payload that went, remember the Tesla, the Elon Musk Tesla, the red one? His payload went up with that, right? Um, so he, he's been doing a lot of different things. And then uh, unlike me, you know, still waiting on my first book, but uh, he was able to pull it together and and created something. And it's it's a it's a good book. It's excellent as far as an understanding of business relationship of you know what we call the new space industry and opening the frontier. So, Robert, welcome, my friend. Hey, Rick. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, no, it, it's good I'm to great. have you and. Um, you know, we, I think we just saw each other a few weeks ago um, over some uh, sushi, which you bought, by the way, um, I think, and uh, in uh, in L.A. It was great seeing you. So, look, let, let's dive in here real quick. I want to I, I want to hear about the book and like what what is the core of the book? What would it you know, like your elevator pitch, you know, your summary? How would how would you sell the book? <sighs> well, you know, Rick. I'm just going to go something straight to what might be the mind blowing thing, because I just believe in giving the goods right up front. Got it. Only space can do quadrillion. Now, just think about that. Let that sit in. When you take in the scale and the size of just our solar system, we're we are that we are all residents of space has Mm -hmm. the opportunity to do things at a scale that humanity has never reached before. And for thousands of years, humanity has has really focused on space as a location. It's been an inspirational type of enabler. And now it's becoming easier for more of us to access and eventually for us all to access, leverage, and better um, be involved with because it's just been kind of a, a misunderstood. It is complex, but it's getting easier 
for more to be involved. And it's already influencing every industry on the planet. And, it, and as I shared just a couple seconds ago, it's never been easier to access today. So if you want to become an astropreneur, now is the time. Everybody can do it. Everybody can do it. With the right training, experience, background, fundraising, business plan, idea, etc. And that's kind of what your book's about, right? You're really kind of um, diving into, you know, hey, you, so you want to start a space business, right? That's kind of where you're going with the book, right? Yeah, it's a 360 degree viewpoint of the space sector. Although I am an optimistic, I am an optimist regarding the space industry, and maybe there is some cheerleading. I bring in a wide range, over 100 different individuals of their view, vantage points to, to really give it, uh, to solidify and give the reader a solid foundation. You don't need to be a rocket scientist. That should be the disclosure first. But to understand where the opportunities and where some of the challenges are. And, and, and look, from challenge creates opportunity. So um, I, I tell people who are looking to become an astropreneur or to enter the sector in some way, I said, Look in your own proverbial backyard, both geographically and in what your own passion or maybe your um, educational experience might be to find uh, a potential fit for you, because this can be a very personalized experience. You don't need to, um, um, you know, we can emulate others, but I think it's about personalizing um, the, the, the space experience. Yeah. So you and I both know, I mean, you know, I'm occasionally one of those evil venture capitalists in the space field, but, you know, we're both investing in space in different ways. And, you know, there's some myths out there, right. Uh, that you have to have a billion dollars, you know, um, uh, I remember the old joke, if you want to make a million in space, start with a billion, but, uh, there's this, uh, this idea you have to have huge amounts of money, which I think comes from the idea of financing, like a, a, a rocket ship development program. Right. But there's a whole bunch of other types of business. Right. You don't have to start with a billion dollars to get in the space field. Right. No, exactly. We, let's use the Silicon uh, Valley. You know, Silicon Valley for a while was not consumer focused. They were working on, you know, uh, semiconductors, uh, mainframe computers. And along came this thing called the Apple II computer. And all of a sudden, you know, regular folks started using it and it percolated just this idea that, you know, you could have, you know, a home computer, you could do it for all sorts of different applications, even though there were some other personal computing, but it just really opened up the world. And you could say that maybe groups like SpaceX are doing that, showing that an outsider can come in, create new opportunity, eventually start to dominate and start enabling other individuals, organizations to use that transportation infrastructure technology for their own purposes, whether they're launching a small satellite, whether they want to put something on the space station, reducing the both the, the friction in terms of the price point, as well as just the hurdle. You used to not be able to, it was very difficult to call up NASA and say, how much is it to send my pay payload to space? They they might would likely not give you an answer because they didn't know how to give you an answer or what the an, or what the answer of the day was. So just tr market transparency is a really a, a, um, a important aspect to this. Right. So I want to be very clear. You're talking about Elon and SpaceX and stuff. That's the billionaire side of it. But what he's doing 
and what Bezos and Rocket Lab and Firefly and all these other companies are doing is they're creating sort of the transportation infrastructure, which they're doing the large investing, right? This is, uh, they're building the post office, they're building the FedEx, all of that. What we're talking about here is the small companies, the startups, and you mentioned it, small satellites, they, the other applications that use this expensive infrastructure, right? So people can get into it for, uh, you know, and I know with, uh, with Space Fund, we, we invest, you know, sometimes 50K, 150K, 250K to help get somebody started and get them rolling on it. So that, that's kind of basically what you're saying. You can, you can use this infrastructure and now we have real prices because the government couldn't give us prices before. And now you can sit down and write a business plan saying it's going to cost me as much to do my thing, right? Yeah, that's correct. And there's, and there's now an even a third layer. Now that there's some of these, let's go back to satellite companies are out there and they're selling products and, and, and basically they're you know, data and communications companies usually one can go out there and use what those satellite companies are doing to build businesses on top of that. And you can probably continue to go down the food proverbial food chain. So uh, maybe you have a mobile app idea. And as an example, I I met someone who was, uh, she wanted to, she had this crazy, it seemed like, you know, crazy idea where she wanted to say, how do we monitor and measure the emotional sentiment in a hyper-local area. Can we take, she wanted to both integrate the social media feeds, look at like the chatter of say, let's just say a zip code or a city and just say, is it trending? Are people trending positive or negative? And also overlay that with GIS data, satellite information data, and give this kind of three-dimensional layer. Her business eventually evolved and she was actually able to sell it. It was it was kind of different than the original thesis. But I love this idea where she was trying to connect this idea of being able to create more transparency and empathy and feelings and using satellite data. I thought that was really, really a neat idea. And, and, and to do some of this, she was actually using machine learning as kind of the, uh, the middle layer that was connecting these pieces. So she was taking different areas, software, and, and you know, all of this, this information-based stuff, combining that with space data as to locations and, and that kind of thing, and then putting them together and saying, okay, these people here are pissed off, right? And then something these like people that. over here are <laughs> something along that line. Okay, very interesting, man. But again, she's not having to build a billion-dollar space company. Nope. Right. Um, now, I recall I, I was at a thing with, with Bezos a while back here. And, um, you know, he's made it clear several times that when he got started, you know, Silicon Valley, essentially, he wasn't physically there, so to speak. But the idea was that the, the post, post office had already been created. Right. The Internet was already created so that two kids in a dorm room could come up with a business plan. And part of his work in space. And incidentally for Elon, because Elon's got his own gig going, he wants to go to Mars, but you know, he's going to create a transportation system. What they're actually doing is putting that infrastructure in place so that perhaps in the future, and, and NASA's helping and, uh, and Space Force and all these others are helping as far as trying to do what they can. Basically, two kids can sit in a, a dorm room and put the pieces together and start a business. 
And that's kind of what you're saying, right? It's like, here's how you do it. Here's what people who have done it are telling you you should do. Yeah, that, that's exact. That's exactly it. And you and you've mentioned several times about the U.S. Uh, post office analogy. Netflix benefited from that. There's a lot of business businesses that have benefited from um, core government investments. And, and sometimes people are concerned about that. They find it, you know, they'll say, oh, is this usury? Are they freeloading and going? No, they're actually they're just using that as a stepping stone. Netflix didn't end there. They started with, you know, those CD, you know, those DVDs. And I think they've just recently in 2023 starting to wrap that part of their business up. You know, most of it is, is streaming. And um, but there are still incredible benefits that we get from uh, the United States government investing in core R&D that usually the private sector, even sometimes the academic sector can't shoulder on that we still get benefits from. And space is one of those areas. And um, and maybe we could even just shift to, um, you know, groups like SpaceX received fair contracts to bring cargo and crew to the space station. And it really was that development to that technology was not a lot of money. Had those same contracts likely been given to an incumbent business, I am not confident we would have gotten the same return on investment that we have today. Now that, you know, that you can is a debatable topic, but I, I'm willing to put some money down to say that the the money that the US taxpayer helped fund for some of the some of the co-development, because there was private investments also into SpaceX that was eventually given us this platform called the Falcon 9, which is a very now reliable vehicle. The U.S. taxpayer has gotten a very good return, and it's not just a monetary return, but just so there's there's so many other intangibles that are probably measurable and more difficult to measure, qualitative and quantitative. Absolutely. Hey there, spacers. You're listening to IROC Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio Network. My name is Rick Tomlinson. Our guest is Robert Jacobson. We're going to be right back after a break. Hey there, Spacers. You are back with the Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and our guest, Robert Jacobson, author of a great new book called Space is Open for Business, the industry that can transform humanity. So look, Robert, um, we were talking about the idea that, you know, we're trying, there's the cost is coming down so that um, people who aren't billionaires, or people who have just a little bit of money, but have some great ideas, participate in space. And, you know, I know that what I see at, at, at my company, Space Fund, um, we see a lot of very interesting ideas and we see a lot of crazy ideas. Um, and then we see some that are in the middle that need a lot of work. But there are some basic rules, right? I mean, just because you're engaged in space doesn't mean it's like different than the sort of rules you have on a, on an earth business, right? All the fundamentals still apply, correct? Yeah, correct. First of all, there's no ATM that I know of yet in space. So <laughs> you're dealing with very terrestrial concerns, whether it's, you know, setting up an entity, the finance, the legal, the operations, the team. And when I sort of, you know, would, tell any entrepreneur is, uh, you know, timing and team are probably two of the most core, uh, crucial elements because uh, you, you can sometimes have a great team not working on the right idea and, and, and timing, which 
sometimes difficult to predict or manage, but that sometimes a, is a critical part of the success of a new business. And when you're out there fundraising from private investors, you know, you have to compete with other investment opportunities, whether, you know, the investor invests in a public equity or um, real estate or other, you know, technology focused businesses. You just can't be a space business. You got to be a good business. So that, I think that's a, that's a, a, a consideration that I would uh, urge aspiring uh, entrepreneurs of any domain to, to remember. I am going to steal that line. What you just said, you can't just be a space business. You have to be a good business. And that makes the point, right? Good business is good business. Um, you can't, you can't come in with, you know, what we, we sometimes call, Oh, all I need is uh, unobtainium, you know, and I, or, or, um, I, or just give me a billion dollars and I'll be fine. And I'll start, you know, or a hundred million and I can start my company. No, no, you, you have to start small you have to grow, prove you've got a product that's answering a need in the market and, and that you just have a basic business plan. So really in a way, what you're saying is if you're going to be, you know, if you're really, if you're young and you're just getting into college, you've got stars in your eyes, you want to participate in a new space industry or something, take some business courses, right? Yeah. And or get an internship, work for someone, work uh, yeah. for another organization. I'll use an example. Um, Tim Ellis, the co-founder and current CEO of a space launch company called Relativity Space. Uh, he worked at Blue Origin and I think he might have done a stint at SpaceX. I'm, I'm not quite sure. But when he was at uh, Blue Origin, he was part of that founding group that was working on additive manufacturing. And he took some of that expertise when he to, to uh, form Relativity. Relativity is the spaceship company that is basically... 3D printing spacecraft, correct? That is correct. That's correct. Yeah. 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 So they're um they're out there doing it. You know, they're they're they haven't had a successful, fully successful launch yet, but they're they're working on it and they're gonna be back around. But that's also the other thing. Yeah, in fact, let's touch on that for a second. You have to be ready to fail. You have to be ready to screw it up and then look with clear eyes at what you've done. And get it right and come back in a second time, right? When you're starting a business? Yeah. Yeah. You you iterate. Um, there's lots of tools out there, whether you're working on something that's more you know, software or hardware driven. So um, you do have to break things, but also you can break things in simulation. And there's just, you know, I, I mean, entrepreneurs have just an incredible amount of tools. It's probably almost overwhelming. So instead of getting overwhelmed by, I can do everything you know, you want to focus, you want to limit your, you know, do have some limitations to your palette. You know, you don't need to use every communications tool for your team. You know, you find what works for today and you go with it. So one challenge that I'm sure most entrepreneurs have dealt with at some point is a little bit of um, analysis paralysis where you can become overwhelmed with the amount of information available and then recognize that, you know, some decisions you don't have to make today, they can wait tomorrow. And then sometimes when you do need to make a decision, recognize it might not be the optimal decision, but you make a decision to move it forward. Because as a, a professor once shared with me, it's small steps for big wins. It's just continue to put one foot in front of the other. And it's that 
progress through um, being persistent and tenacious that really is more fruitful the long run. And there's also a little bit of uh, the myth of age, you know, a myth of, of age in entrepreneurship. I think a lot of the statistics is some of the more successful entrepreneurs on the whole, when you're looking globally, are not necessarily the ones that are super young. I think it's entrepreneurship that can be embraced by many and all. But just because you're just out of college does not mean that that get, you know it ensures success. Um, there's something to be said for those who had um, years under their belt, mistakes, and they're still standing upright and breathing to be able to live and fight another day. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I just started my company, Base Fund, uh, four years ago. So indeed, four or five years but um, so look, you're, um, what is your favorite in, in the book? What is your the favorite part of the book that, you know, the part of it that you enjoyed the most, like the lessons or whatever it is, the interviews, whatever it was, which, which part of your book, uh, you know, are, are, should somebody like come to maybe first when they, when they buy it? I was actually talking about this yesterday and, and it changes, but. As of right now, the time of the recording, and it's probably the least sexy part of the book, but I enjoyed working on the policy section. Now, towards the back, it's actually kind of a more of an appendix section because it's sort of like not for everybody, but it, essentially there's a section where I tried to have policy ideas for um, entrepreneurs, those in government and other forms of leadership giving some broad and specific ideas how to more sustainably grow the space industry. And I had a lot of fun with that because I just got to think about solutions because it's easy for us to kind of complain, you know, for anyone just complain about things, but trying to find, uh, you know, put potential tool pieces in. And there's plenty of, you know, academic papers that, you know, maybe address some of these concerns. But this was a type of thing where I was talking to experts and, and putting things into, um, you know, short little chunks, bullet points, and, and that sort of thing, which was fun. Another really fun aspect, it was, it was creation of the artwork. I cannot draw very well, but I hired a company to do hand-drawn illustrations. And I love great 2D uh, art because it just feels really longer lasting and very durable to me. And um, so I came up with, you know, kind of conceived ideas and I sat with the artists and and uh, working with them on coming coming up with the artwork was 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 a lot of fun. And of course, just speaking to the to the various experts um, was also a whole lot of fun. So you're talking about policies. Uh, you talked about that in a very general sense, but what what about policies? What, why are policies important in a book on uh, on becoming a, or starting a space business? What's 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 that's government? I mean, really? Well, what? space. <laughs> To, space still has a lot of rules, even though it's very open for entrepreneurs to do all sorts of things. If you're trying to put things into space, there's still many rules that you have to abide by on in terms of international regular, uh, you know, international treaties and um, and domestic governance. You know, you're if you're putting a space a satellite up, which is a spacecraft, it's got to be flagged with a country. It, it, it's going to have to have a radio to talk to the ground. That's going to be regulated. Um, if you're in the United States, you want to work in the space industry, you have to have a green card or a U.S. passport to 
to generally work in many, not all areas of the space sector. So we're, we're dealing with a, a critical labor shortage issues with the space industry where we're going to need more qualified, technically competent, qualified uh, individuals. So how do you get those folks trained? Um, so I speak to these issues because these are things that um, an entrepreneur needs to at least be aware of. They don't have to necessarily solve them, but they get, at least need to have an awareness from them. And and I think being aware that these issues exist is is just it's it makes you kind of a good space citizen or, or a good space professional, excuse me. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of giving an overview, um, you know, so somebody should study business or be an apprentice in a business, then read your book, you know, and then they're going to be primed. It's sort of a primer of, it is. Of, a, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, there are university professors who are using my book as like their as their as the core book for their um, semester, which um, wow. really tickled me. It was nothing that was planned. Almost weekly, I get folks who write me and say, "Who say I picked up your book, and it has influenced me to do this or that." And it ranges from um, uh, selecting a major in school to um, reorienting a, a career that they're midstream in their professional career. And I'm just. Um, I mean, it's exactly what I wanted the book to do is to really uh, be an inspirational and influential point in someone's life. And and sometimes people discover things that, you know, sometimes mid-career. So it's not just about folks who are just figuring out their career. There's folks who are writing me and saying, I've been doing, you know, X activity for 20, 30 years or longer. And I'm making some modifications to my life because I feel that I they have something that they could contribute to the space sector. And I think that's just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. It is. It is truly a wonderful thing. And look, we're going to go ahead and take a break. But um, I'm with Robert Jacobson, the book that we're talking about, the transformative book that you obviously need to go buy right now. Because look, you've self-selected. If you're listening to this show, you're probably a space nerd of some sort. So go buy the book, Space is Open for Business, the industry that can transform humanity. We're going to take a little break. We're going to be right back. My name is Rick Tumlinson. You are listening to IROC Space Radio. We're part of the iHeartRadio network, and specifically, it's the Space Revolution. Hey there, spacers. Welcome back to the Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tumlinson, and we have Robert Jacobson with us. He's the author of the great book, Space is Open for Business, the Industry that Can Transform Humanity. So let's talk about that uh, that bigger picture. You know, as you know, and you've done some of this too, we've all been sort of fighting for a long time to get uh, this handoff from, let's call it the government, Lewis and Clark's, to the, the pioneers, um, whether it's the shopkeepers or the settlers or, or whatever. How, how do you feel about where we are right now um, in, in terms of uh, the opening of the frontier, the opening of, of space? How, how do you feel, you know, about the last couple of years where we are now? I think it's, it's super exciting. Things always take longer than we had hoped. I mean, I think we had felt 10 years ago we would be having, you know, suborbital would have been cruising along and orbital would have been going about five years ago. So when I'm talking about a lot of the 
more privately funded human crude endeavors. And it takes longer because, yes, it is difficult. But once you have some of these systems in place, which, one, which I will speak to in a, a moment, it enables all these new applications. And this one um, particular app uh, infrastructure is Starship. There's, it, it is going to, you know, I suspect it'll eventually work. And once it is operational, it's going to be so transformative. It will, it, you know, you're talking about in a few launches, taking up the entire mass of like a space station. You're talking about being able to build huge structures with it because you just can take up a lot of volume. You could take, you know, water or other core things that you might need there. You know, we're looking at, I mean, I, I think with something like a starship, that then would enable within a generation, say 20 years, to allow minimum 100,000 people living in space. And that sounds crazy. Well, how is that possible, Robert? Well, once you have a system that can take large amounts of mass where you can build, you know, essentially big villages, big bases, habitable things, robotic systems, and you will get this exponential growth that will be building upon that. You'll go from 10, you know, say we have 10 people on the space station and then maybe, you know, the next one you could have, say, 100 and then so so forth. It might not quite go in that, you know, we're going to have, um, I, I, I don't know exactly how this is going to look, but the potential is really there. And also the systems and people say, well, you know, we're going to have all this outward expansion. What about us here on Earth? Well, just imagine having within this century's, you know, possibility, or, you know, are I think within maybe 40 years, maybe 40 years where people are going to have the choice to live in space, visit Earth or, or live on the Earth and visit space, retire on the moon because it's easy on the bones and you could still, you know, have your inner gymnastics or break dancing, you know, you know, be, you know, have regenerative medicine where you're living to 100 and living great quality of life till maybe 120, but you're dancing like you're a teenager and on the moon and doing cool gymnastics moves and break dancing. These are the types of fun things that space can enable. And space also just, it's this very unique domain. It's like having a new ocean. It's like walking out to the beach and you see this whole ocean you've never been to before and say, just imagine all the things you could do with it. And it's just almost infinite. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just there's a picture in my head now of, of breakdancing on the moon. Myself breakdancing, which is more break than dancing, but I get your point. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it is true, though. That's, that's the exciting part. That's kind of where you're, the core of this book is about, in the end, creating this new beginning. That we are just beginning this this industrial revolution, this space revolution. We're just in the early, maybe to use the book analogy, we're in the first chapter of, of what's possible. Um, what are your some of your favorite, you kind of touched on them a little bit, but what are some of your favorite ideas for what, what people or businesses that you've heard about as to, you know, to be able to do in space? Things that are really capturing uh, maybe my attention now are things like new, more granular uh, global positioning systems, commercial GPS, they allow uh, more uh, granular data, um, new types of weather systems. Our planet has always been changing, but it's, it's, it's increasingly changing more quickly. 
due to, uh, you know, humans involvement and, and growth, you know, humans have been very successful at growing, maybe too successful in terms of like, you know, there's like close to what, eight to 9 billion of us. So we are using now the capabilities of space, the high ground to better understand not just the macro, but space can also, satellites can look at them. They, they can see areas in forests where there's infestations of, um, you know, uh, you're, you know, challenges within a forest, you know, whether it's being stressed mm -hmm. from drought situation or infestation from insects. So these tools are going to be incredibly important. Or when we look at our vast oceans, over 70% of our planet is, is covered by water. Very difficult to monitor things like illegal fishing, huge problem. And that connects with another issue of forced labor. Many times there's forced labor on some of these fishing ships. And we can use space assets today. It's already being done to help shut that down and or, or, or help other nations better be able to enforce fishing activities. Mm -hmm. These are things yeah. that are particularly interest, interesting to me. Uh, one that I don't, uh, you know, an area that I that we can't do yet, but I think it's still fascinating and uh, is, is space-based solar power. I know there's folks who've, who've kind of tried to put the business plans over the years and hasn't penciled out. But I think if you had a platform like a Starship, you could conceivably within our lifetime start seeing applications being developed so we could at least see proof of concept. Can this actually work? So we can finally put it to, to rest whether or not space-based solar power works. And for those who do not know what that is, that's essentially putting solar farms in space and beaming the energy, whether it's to other spacecraft in space, down to Earth, or to the moon. Right. And that's, by the way, one of the areas that we have to get much better at is explaining to people that being able to access, utilize space, and, and have dramatic cost reductions is going to help save the planet. I, I just saw a video today. It may not, it won't be today by the time you hear this, but where uh, somebody was coming at the idea of like, oh, Mars sucks. Why do you want to go to Mars? I need to take care, you know, take care of me. And it's the Earth speaking, right? And which just flies in the face of everything I believe, which is that by going out there and doing it in a way that is responsible and learning from what we've done wrong in the past, that we can help save the mother world, that we can save this planet by what we learn, by, as you were just saying, observe, uh, but also what we can do in space, um, you know, space resources, uh, energy from space, um, what do they call them? rare earth metals harvesting in space. So those things are very interesting, aren't they? Yeah. Would we expand technologically and physically, we learn and we have to adapt and we have to innovate. And all of that comes back to be a benefit back on Earth. So one thing I like to say, I've got like this um, little tagline that space provides an ROIII. It's like a return on investment, inspiration, and imagination. And, um, you know, imagine say if you're... Uh, say it again. ROIII. So ROIII, return on investment, imagination, and inspiration. You could switch any of those around but you probably get the your listeners will get the point mm -hmm. I, love it. I mean look space is it's not like you know the early days of the space program where it was all government you know many people were big fans of nasa i mean even till to this day in 21st century i still see kids and adults who wear nasa t-shirts when do you ever see someone that wears like an irs t-shirt you know it's like <laughs> <laughs> So, right, right. So, so we've got this government entity that 
people actually like it. Yeah. And look, nothing is perfect. And, and we, and, you know, and we all want things to be better, but it was still this agency with flaws and all was at least trying to convey this notion of that we can, that humanity can do great things. We can inspire, we can go outward and, 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 and in any type of, I'll say expansionist frontier oriented activity, you're going to piss a few people off. It's never going to be perfect, but the gains and the positive net results are still much more likely to be much higher rather than stasis or contraction. And that's why we need space because I was alluded to, we've got eight to nine billion, or somewhere between eight and nine billion people on this planet. We need space more than ever to improve our lot here on planet, on, you know, Mother Earth, Spaceship Earth, because who am I to say to tell that person in Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia that they shouldn't be able to have a middle, you know, call it a middle-class American-style, American-esque or or Western European-style lifestyle. We probably don't have all the resources here to take, to, to have the quality of lifestyle that you and I've been uh, we are just basically part of a cult, the Lucky Spurb Club. We just happen to be born here. But there are billions of other people who aspire to that. So who am I to say that those people can't have that? But I contend that only through space or with space as this domain enabler, that will be able to elevate all of us. Hmm. And so a couple of points there. One, I want to start at the beginning of your your point there, and that is that Agencies like NASA, European Space Agency, and the rest are important. They're hugely important. Um, they have done the Lewis and Clark role, the scientific development role, the early research role, and a lot of the early funding that is still being provided that helps companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, all these others, uh, you know, they're, they're buying rides for their payloads, and that helps create the economy out there. So they have a very, very serious role. And I, it's very important for me to get that across because sometimes people think that I'm uh, completely anti-NASA and, and I know that I'm not, but I also know you're not. This is, it is important that we have this, this interaction between the two. And then I want to jump to your, your, your second point though, that that is that the overall importance of, of what this is for humanity, that this is not, this is not a game. This isn't rich boys and their toys that there is something really bigger and much more important going on, right? This is, and I think it's happening at an interesting time where there are, we have, you know, complex social, economic, environmental, even technological challenges in our time. And space is extremely interdisciplinary. And because it's the space call industry is so influenced by culture and culture influences it, it's a unique area. I mean, how many disciplines, it's not like, the life science is like, you know, um, I'll to pick on life sciences for a second, that they're hugely influenced by what goes on in uh, Hollywood, whereas Hollywood, hugely influential TV and movies to space. And what do I mean? Well, you look at the early days of Star Trek and so many entrepreneurs, well-known and not well-known people that got into science and business were influenced by just this one idea that this guy Gene Roddenberry created. And that happens time and time again with space. 
We still get dividends from things that go back pre-Apollo program. I mean, like, and it's not just the, the companies that are in space that are benefiting from it. I ask your listeners, they even never go out and ride my book. Go out and look up something that NASA produces. It used to be a print publication. Now I think it's mostly electronic. I think it's called NASA spinoffs. And basically, it's a, I think it's a quarterly publication where they highlight all the various spinoffs. That's the technology transfer that is coming out of NASA. And it's not just space related. It is affecting so many different disciplines. And it's not just things that have likely you know, saved someone's life that someone we know and love, but then there's all the economic component, there's jobs being created. So this is just, you know, the, the space sector is really important for us here in the United States and the world. And I'm, and I'm hoping that we're, we'll see more participation. I just learned about, there was a conference that just wrapped up in Africa, I think in the Ivory Coast. They had a bunch of, um, and they called it something like the African New Space Conference, something like that. The fact that they're using the words new space, which is a term Rick and his colleagues at the Space Frontier Foundation championed, you know, invented and championed that you're, you're you know, seeing these new entrants, countries coming together, African nations say, talking together, going, where are the opportunities? Where are the challenges? I think this is a really a beautiful thing. Yes. And thank you for the compliment there. Um, and it was a team effort, but what is great is just seeing it being used, you know, the new space, by the way, the term new space, the, the, the core of the definition is companies and businesses and enterprises and projects that are started by, or in the name of, or have the end result or the goal of opening the frontier of space. That's what it's about. They have a tendency to look a lot like, uh, you know, new generation space, uh, companies like Silicon Valley type companies. You know, they're, they're moving fast, they're nimble, that kind of thing. But that's the core. The, the idea of they don't exist just to suck off of the government. They don't exist just to live off the taxpayers. They exist to do something important and great and open the frontier. And I love your, your idea of, of, you know, that this is inspiring people all over the world. Um, absolutely very, very important. This is about everybody. And speaking of everybody, hey, everybody, we're going to be right back. My name is Rick Tomlinson. You can uh, follow me at, at Rocket Rick on the Twitterdom if you like. Uh, follow me on LinkedIn. I, I drop a lot of stuff out there. And you are listening to The Space Revolution, part of iRock Radio Network, and which is itself part of the iHeart family of radio and TV. Robert Jacobson is our guest. We're going to be back, and now we're going to go have some fun. Spacers, welcome back to the fourth quarter here. Robert Jacobson is my, uh, my guest, an old friend. His book is Space is Open for Business, the industry that can transform humanity. Go buy it now. I want him to see a bump in sales, but, uh, by the way, Robert, you're, I, I love the way your mind works. Um, so I had lunch with Robert in, uh, in LA recently and, um, you know, you know how you want your friends to give you like an autographed copy of the book. So Robert shows up and, uh, we're, we we were at a, interestingly, a Korean run, uh, sushi restaurant and, and Robert pulls out a copy of his book, says, Rick, you know, I've signed this for you. It's all yours. It's a gift to you. And I look down and it's the Korean version of the book. Thank you in Korean. 
uh, and uh, I think is something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, I can do the accent, but I can't do the language. Right. Thank you. And uh, I, I will treasure it. Um, it'll be one of my novelties. Someday I'll be able to read it. But Robert, you're uh, you're a big thinker. You know, you've got a lot of vision to you. Um, you've worked on a lot of different projects over time. Is there something on your horizon space wise that, that you're intrigued about that maybe you want to get involved with, or maybe you see someone, you know, that you believe other people should be focusing on. Where do you want to see this go? Oh, wow. That's uh that's a great one. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much uh, for the little shout out for the Korean version. It's published by, you know, books, great folks over there in Seoul. God, the big things I would love to see, you know, I, I would love to see, you know, the new materials, I call it the M&Ms from space, the new materials and new medicines, because we have a vacuum, you know, space is a pure vacuum. There's extreme temperatures. You could have like, you know, you could have a object and on one side could be very cold. The other side could be very hot. You know, the, the sun facing side. I believe in the possibility soon of new materials being being created and developed in space for use on Earth and medicines. And I use medicines broadly being therapies and protocols because of the unique nature of what microgravity has on uh, biological systems and that we can learn a lot from. So that's things I, I am really optimistic and I can really see in the near to uh, mid future things that I, that I want to see in my lifetime. I really want to see big structures like, you know, the O'Neill types of cylinders of habitats and free space where there's thousands of people um, living, playing in space, maybe with their pets in space. I'd love to see that. I want to see new energy generation in space, you know, things like, you know, really har- harnessing our are currently our best nuclear reactor, which is 93 million miles from us, which is the sun, uh, you know, whether it's developing new types of solar panels for terrestrial on earth or beaming this energy, those are the things that kind of would be like my, my wish list. Um, in terms of my professional endeavors, we've been working at space advisors, helping organizations and individuals, not yet in the space industry, helping those organizations and individuals, enter the sector, take advantage of it, and eventually dominate it. would love to um, you know, help more folks in that area, whether it's uh, creating their strategy to enter the space sector or on the diligence side and, and other uh, ways to use some of our, I think, our, um, our superpowers. Very, very cool. So uh, I'm saving, I've always saved the, the fun questions here to the end, the hard ones. So for you, I think it's going to be low Earth orbit. You're flying in low Earth orbit, high speed, thousands of clicks a minute or an hour. And um, so you can feel the speed of it. You're looking down, you're seeing the Earth. What music are you listening to? Uh, well, I, have a, I do have a music background. So um, I, I think one of the pieces of music that I would probably listen to, there's sort of two. Mm-hmm. One would be for... John Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds, which might be a very obscure reference for some. You could look it up. And um, second would be Pat Metheny's um, Above the Treetops from his album from, I think it's 92 or 93, The Secret Story. It was a solo album. It's, it uses a, it's a credible piece of music where he took a traditional Cambodian chant. It's kind of the introduction to it. And then he brings in this kind of quasi- Cam, you know, it's Cambodian with 
jazz and it's just feels slightly um, introspective and spiritual, but also outwardly looking. And I forget if it goes into the next track, which is Facing West, which has this very Americana sound, strumming guitars, but yet there's uh, you can hear all these different influences because I think as you're flying, you know, maybe you're going over, you know, Brazil out over to the Atlantic and Africa. You you might be going, oh my gosh, I, that was we just flew over Brazil. Now we're over the Atlantic, and, and now we're coming to Africa. An artist like Pat Metheny, who is really an amazing composer, who was able to bring lots of different influences, would would kind of would probably touch my heart in that moment. That was a beautiful cho- pair of choices, man. What was your favorite uh, science fiction film or TV show, or both? <sighs> I still love Blade Runner. I know it's it can be mm. kind of a it's kind of in some ways it's a dark dystopian, but there's something so beautiful about the love between you know it's it's both a detective story a look into the future but also this a love story i think it's just a great one a more you know you know look at you know and look at what happened in the the sequel um, blade runner 2049 is that the or 2070 i Mm -hmm. i actually forget the yeah yeah um and 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 the sequel and a more recent film that i love is the arrival you know it's just Mm -hmm. another film that has and i'm not really one for I'm not really one for rom-coms or romantic films in general, but I've, but I do sort of look for films that have like, I think this, maybe there's this love component, you know, and I, I really felt when the, in the arrival, when the, one of the, uh, aliens, uh, essentially there's, they take the bomb up to the spaceship and there's kind of a tragedy that ensued and, and the story about, I don't want to mm-hmm. give too don't, much don't, of don't, a way, but yep, yep, yep. Gotta be careful. Yeah. But yeah, okay. So I'll stop you there. Don't want to get any, you know, bad email here. Um, and then <laughs> <Or> be the <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> right, right, right. Favorite science fiction or or straight science or whatever book. Oh, book. most influential. Most influential. <sighs> the most influential book for for me. It was probably. Uh, I mean. This was I, I I discovered this later in life, but um, the High Frontier by Jerry O'Neill. I discovered it as an adult. It was actually given to me by a a peer of ours. I remember it was in New York City. I was at the um, Fifty Five Bar, and um, Will William had given me a copy. We were there hearing some jazz. We ended up giving that copy to the bartender, and then later oh, wow. I had to, it, the copy was meant for me. I later had to get my own copy, which was fine because we both kind of recognized in the moment that the bartender was kind of curious what we were talking about. And, and then Will and I and, and we ended up giving it to the to the bartender. But I think the high frontier, because I just trying to, you know, this book came out when the late uh, mid 70s or early 70s, mid 70s. Mid and I'm 70s. thinking like at that time. You know, this book was kind of, it, it's both take, taking these things that were coming out of the Apollo program, which was still happening, but also giving this hypothetical about this, you know, living in space in this space city. I just, it was, I was like, just trying to, it was kind of mind blowing going like, this is really forward looking stuff and going, and I think you know, that is, and maybe it's not science. I mean, I guess it's technically science fiction, but it's a little more, is it more hard fiction? What, I mean, hard science fiction, where does it? No, it's fact. Phyllis and, <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's projection. It's projection. It's, uh, yeah. I, I, uh, it's funny you say that, uh, the fiction part, because I recently found several quotes 
from people like Asimov and this guy named Sagan, where they actually talk about the high frontier and say, not only is this stuff something we could do now, right? But it is, it is all technically feasible now. And that was in like 75. But, but it was, it was my guess is that it was probably due to political will that those things did not necessarily happen. Absolutely. Well, not because know. of creativity, not because of technology, not because of like know-how or even resources, but political will. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we'll get into my life story later about dealing with that because that's kind of the story of my life is trying to fight that. But you're, um, you're a fascinating guy, man. And, and I really do appreciate having you come on. I want to wrap up here with what is your message to somebody out there? Uh, oh, by the way, I love earlier that you were saying entrepreneurs don't have to be young people. They could be anybody, somebody who's left a job, anybody, anybody. But also, though, looking at the younger crowd, looking at people who are rising up now or anybody else who's listening to the show right now, who's thinking about maybe getting engaged, maybe participating, what is the path you recommend? What, what do you say to them about how do you play? How do you join in this revolution? Well, maybe you live in a um, maybe if you don't live in a place that has a, a university or space business, I would first say start to read you know, start to act, you know, learn a little bit. There's resources, whether it's my book or there's lots of resources out there, you know, free, low cost, libraries, schools, the internet. And then once you have, you don't have to read everything, you don't have to understand everything, but once you have, a, you know, a little bit of, you know, inspiration, some ideas, reach out to folks, ask them just for a, you know, a brief conversation, ask a question because maybe they don't have time to have like a, you know, full hour conversation, but you know, reach out to a lot of folks and just have it. It's almost like your own interview where you're interviewing them just saying, what's it like to be a space entrepreneur? What's it like to be, um, you know, a rocket scientist, whatever they do, you know, be respectful of their time, but just ask a question. Some might, you know, entertain having a, a video call with you. You know, some might just want to have an email or some other conversation. And as you ask those questions, have these kind of these, um, inform we'll call them informational interviews you can use that to later in life come back to those people, whether you say, hey, now I'm, you know, interning here or I'm trying to migrate here or do this or there. And you might be able to get further feedback, develop relationships over time because you want to have those relationships to help grow your own network. Then if you will find as you're learning, you will find things that interest you. Say, hey, you know, I really don't want to be a business guy. I really want to be an engineer. I just love turning, you know, turning wrenches. Whatever it is that fires you up in the morning, you know, you will grow and evolve. And that even might change. I mean, we all take on new roles. We all wear multiple roles and hats in our life. So don't be afraid to, um, to try on things and ask, you know, just asking a lot of people questions. And you don't have to take it all as fact. You're just learning. We all have, um, we have experiences and it's great to be able to share them with other folks. That's perfect. I um. You mentioned Star Trek earlier. I'll show a quick story and then we'll wrap it up here. But I remember being a techie in school because I dropped out of so many classes and all this. And I was backstage and, um, in college. And uh, the guest speaker was a guy named Gene Roddenberry, who you mentioned earlier. And I had a few minutes alone with him and uh, said, Mr. Roddenberry, I really want to make Star Trek happen. And I've been inspired by this thing called the High Frontier. And I really want to go out there and help you do it. And 
and make it happen. But, you know, I've, I've cut all my classes. I'm, I'm a terrible student. Uh, what do I do? And he said, look, just keep learning, keep reading, and don't let anybody ever tell you you can't do it and just never, ever, ever give up. And I was like, oh, yeah, but that sounds, that sounds so great. But I mean, how, do, how did you do it? And he said, he said, Rick, well, first he said, what's your name? And I said, my name's Rick. He said, okay, Rick, you know what I did before Star Trek? And I said, no, what did you do? He said, I was an LAPD officer. I used to cruise around in my black and white with my script laying on the seat next to me. He said, just go for it, do it. And that inspired me because, I mean, you know, I thought, you know, oh, he was born Star Trek guy or something, you know, <laughs> and, and we, we do that a lot. But these people, they, they work their way up. And, and Robert, you've inspired me. I think you've inspired the audience who's listening in. I truly appreciate it. Your book, again, is Space is Open for Business, the Industry that Can Transform Humanity. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, hey, spacers, we are done with another episode of the Space Revolution here on iHeart and iRock Space Radio. My, you can look me up at, at Rocket Rick. We are out the airlock. You've been listening to the Space Revolution podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.